Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem and Plat podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Sean William Gannon. Sean is currently an independent scholar and is the author of the book, The Irish Imperial Service, Policing Palestine and Administering the Empire, 1922-1966 published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. The book talks about essentially uh, the British policing policy that was developed throughout the British Empire and specifically in Palestine. The creation of the Irish Free State in 1922 eventually created a rupture in Ireland's relationship with the British Empire and Irish imperial activity. Nonetheless, as we will see and we will hear throughout the interview, contacts and entanglements of Irish people with the administration of the British Empire continued through the 1960s. Between 1922 and 1966, when the British colonial office eventually closed, Irish men and women were continuously recruited into Britain's imperial civil service. Uh, and essentially, with this, uh, we see later created uh, you know, debates later on uh, whether Ireland was not or was part of the British Empire and sort of the imperialism attached to it and the role of the Irish into uh, British uh, imperialism. Now, the majority of these Irish colonial uh, servants were assimilated, and I think this is a key word that I found in the book, into Britain's imperial ruling caste. And so that also meant that their attitudes toward anti-colonialists in Africa and Asia were no different from those other British counterparts. This book uh, is part of a Middle Eastern study series because effectively looks into Palestine, particularly mandatory Palestine, as its base. And this book makes a very important contribution to the discussion of the complex relationship of Irish nationalist attitudes and the British Empire. But on the other hand, it really provides a lot of details about policing in Palestine, which is a, a very important topic, but unfortunately not many uh, books have been written about it. And so, you know, this work provides us with a lot more new details and particularly important nuances uh, looking into the British policing and who were the British policing Palestine. Now, after this lengthy introduction, the first thing I just want to say is to uh, welcome my guest. So, Sean, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. It's good to be here. Now, my first question is very much about your background. So I was just wondering if you can tell us... Uh, just uh, you know, a few things about yourself, your background, and how you came to work on policing in Palestine. Uh, well, I'm based in Limerick City, an independent scholar, as you said, and my work focuses on 20th century Ireland and the British Empire, and more specifically, their overlaps, their intersections, uh, so to speak. Um, policing in Palestine was the subject of my PhD, which I did here in Limerick at Mary Immaculate College with uh, Dr. Deirdre McMahon. It wasn't my original idea at all. I had started looking at Irish Catholic attitudes to Zionism and the foundation of Israel in 1948 and in the decade afterwards. And during my research on that, I kept coming across references to a person called Father Eugene Hode. He wrote a lot of material for the Irish papers. It was the source for a lot of reports on the, um, the war of 1948-49. So when I looked into him, I found out that he was Catholic chaplain to the Palestine police. And there were um, remarks about there being hundreds of Irish people working in that service. And that reminded me of something I'd done in a previous life. In 2003, I'd interviewed a man in Waterford who had this big collection of photographs that his sister had as a nurse in Bells and she was there at the liberation and in passing he showed me photographs of Palestine and said he'd been a policeman there so those two things coming together that conference made me think okay I'll change the subject of my PhD and I started studying it 
and found that there was a huge archive of personnel records, two enormous archives actually, that had never really been tapped before. So that's what I did. After the PhD then, I did a postdoc in Trinity with Professor Yunan O'Halpin, an IRC postdoc, and I expanded my research to look at Irish imperial service in the independent Ireland period as a whole, because my research on Palestine kept turning up all these references to other Irish people working in the colonial service, not just in Palestine, but throughout the empire, because many Irish Palestine policemen went elsewhere after Palestine. So that's essentially how I came to look at Palestine and how I came to broaden out uh, the topic for the book. Now, the book starts with a fascinating story of Father Eugene Hood. Can you tell us something more about him and how the story connects with your narrative? Yes, certainly. He's a really fascinating character and an internationally known person at the time, but long, long forgotten. He was born in Galway in 1903 into a very large Catholic family, um, very religious family. Three of his siblings uh, took holy orders and he himself went into holy orders in 1921. He joined the Franciscan novitiate in Kilkenny then and he was ordained six years later in Rome. He got a doctorate in theology there. He came back to Ireland for about a year, and then he was appointed vice principal of the Franciscan Secondary School in Jerusalem, Terra Santa College. He went over there, proved quite a success, and was made principal. And in 1937, he was appointed custodian of the Basilica at Gethsemane, um, just outside the old city, a quite a prestigious position, and he was the only Irish person ever actually appointed to the role. And he served in that role until 1956. He stayed there after it transferred to Jordanian control and uh, he was expelled for political activities in 1956 uh, back to Ireland and then back to Rome where he died. And it's his political activities that really sort of interested me. I came to be interested in how a, a Catholic, an Irish advanced nationalist Catholic, his family were involved in the War of Independence. His mother had ran a safe house. Two or three of his brothers were actually in the IRA. How did he become, or how did he um, reconcile that with becoming what he, essentially a stalwart of Palestine's British imperial elite? Because he was a major figure in Palestine throughout the 30s and 1940s. And I was interested in how his background um, influenced his views on the situation there. He was a fervent anti-Zionist, actually militant when it came to it in 1948. And his opposition derived from two things, the kind of theological Judeophobia that was very commonplace in Irish Catholic culture at the time. He thought that Zionism was an affront to, um, to his religion. The Jews had been you know, they killed Christ, they were expelled from, from the area of Palestine because of their deicide and their refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And therefore, the reconstitution of Zionist sovereignty there was, you know, um, was a, a corruption of the spiritual order as far as he was concerned. He was also against it politically because he brought to bear his views on Ireland, he again, a very strong Irish nationalist, to Palestine. And what he saw there was as he saw the dispossession of the Arabs by Zionist immigrants. And he compared this to the Cromwellian dispossessions in Ireland in the 17th century. So basically, he, he, he was interesting to me as an example of how Irishness could inform the personal imperial um, experience. And his story kind of is reflected in much of what I say in the book. You know, there are echoes of his story in a lot of the uh, themes with which I deal. Indeed, a fascinating story, and it's also interesting to see that there was already some forms of anti-Zionism emerging uh, as quite early, uh, particularly in Ireland. But this is not really the topic of the conversation, and maybe we'll we get back to that later. Uh, I'm interested in, uh, you know, the question of the uh, sort of Ireland as providing manpower for both policing and civilian jobs. And I was wondering if you can give us just a sense of this relationship and uh, how it developed, particularly after the uh, Irish independence in 1922. Yeah, enlistment in, in colonial policing and in the other civilian spheres were kind of quite distinct um, in terms of Ireland. There was a long tradition of supplying uh, men for the colonial police, and that was to do with the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC here. 
which had become a traditional recruiting ground for the colonial police services in the mid-19th century. The Royal Irish Constabulary was seen as a kind of a British imperial uh, elite force. It was a template that was used to create, to reorganise and to professionalise colonial forces. And under that aspect, RIC personnel were transferred to colonies. And this went on from about the 1850s right up to 1922. They went over there and, as I said, uh, either created, reorganised or professionalised um, colonial police forces. About 300, I think, went. If you go through the RIC registers of service, you can see these men going to the colonies. And there are about 300 of them there that went between about 1860 and 1922. With independence in 1922, colonial uh, police recruitment continued. And that was more or less to do with the disbandment of the RIC as part of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. The RIC had had a very bad war of independence. They were seen as the main demons of that, much more so than the British Army because of the black and tans and the auxiliaries and so on. So there was no prospect of the RIC being retained as independent Ireland's police force. So it was disbanded between January and August of 1922. There were two reasons why they went to the colonies. About 300, again, of ex-RIC went to the colonies in 1922 and 1923. So the same amount as had gone in the previous uh, 50 or whatever years. One was because obviously they needed jobs. A lot of these were young men who had long years of work in front of them and they needed employment. The second was that there was a campaign against them, localised campaigns, which was were so numerous that they gave the impression to the RIC of a national campaign. And this was basically retribution for their wartime role. Elements of the IRA, anti-treaty IRA particularly, um, were attacking them. They were intimidating them, giving them expulsion orders. And um, many saw colonial service as a way out, a, a route out of Ireland to a safer place until things died down. Now, of those 300, most of them, 250 or so, went to Palestine with the British Gendarmerie. And that, in terms of uh, colonial police recruitment in in Ireland in the post-independence period, formed the basis for a wider recruitment which went on for the final decades of the mandate. Um, About 800 to 1,000 joined between 1926 and 1947, most of those after the Second World War when there was a recruitment drive the Palestine police was very depleted after the war for for several reasons. In terms of civilian um, recruitment to the colonial services from Ireland, that also kind of began in earnest in the 1850s. Now, Irishmen had been serving as administrators and so on in the colonies since the late 18th century, but it really started in earnest with the introduction of competitive examination for the Indian medical and civil services, because this meant that Irish people could get in on merit as such. It was strictly a competitive exam, as I say. Before that, it was patronage. Who you knew pull, for instance. So this opportunity, getting in on merit, really appealed to um, Irish people and particularly to the education infrastructure here, the elite secondary schools and the universities. And they um, began exploiting this opportunity by, you know, setting curricular subjects for the exam for students and basically encouraging them to go. So by 1914, about 300 men, for instance, had joined the very prestigious Indian Civil Service. Uh, also, the British colonial services, they were kind of developing in this period. And again, they proved very attractive to Irish people. Now, they were still recruited on patronage, but um, they, 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 they did provide an opportunity for the kind of burgeoning Catholic middle class here. And about 15% of those recruited into the colonial services between 1870 and 1914 uh, were um, Irish. Again, this persisted after 1922. There were no reasons to stop, really. The the colonial service were anxious to keep Irish people um, eligible for the service, and they made moves to do that, even though we had kind of made a break in a certain sense. And the things that impelled people to join the British colonial service before 1922 didn't change. And this was basically the employment market in spheres like the law and medicine. The Irish universities were overproducing doctors and lawyers at a huge to a huge extent, and the colonies offered them um, careers. So things like that didn't change after 1922, so it continued on up until the end, 
which was 1966, as you mentioned in your introduction. That's when the colonial office closed. I found it interesting for those who know a little bit about uh, contemporary Ireland that there was an overproduction of doctors, given that today it's exactly the opposite situation. There's a, a lack of doctors. But again, this is about contemporary Ireland. I, I was just wondering something about uh, Palestine in terms of uh, you know, a land that could attract Irish men and women. Uh, was Palestine sought after? I mean, were Irish civil servants attracted possibly by, uh, you know, sort of a religious connection uh, to Palestine or was the appointment to Palestine some sort of random? Uh, th there were a limited number of people who were attracted to that. I mean, the British and Armory was, was, was recruited for Palestine, so the police that went then had little choice. Um, in terms of the, the, say, the colonial legal service, um, particularly there were a lot of Irish judges in Palestine, but they were moved around. So you weren't always recruited for Palestine. You might get transferred there from somewhere else. But certainly in the in the period after the Second World War, when there was a recruitment drive for the Palestine police uh, here and in Britain, uh, quite a few um, uh, Irish policemen were attracted by that, uh, mainly Northerners, religious people. I, I interviewed at least three who said, yes, that it was an opportunity to see the holy places at the uh, king's expense. This is something they could never have dreamed of doing on their own, and they thought they'd go over for a couple of years and see it. So it was attractive to some people like that, and it did. It was actually the sort of proximate cause or the signal motivation for some to join, but it would have been it would have been pretty minimal. I mean, most of the Irish who went to Palestine, um, again, most of them would have been in the police twelve to fifteen hundred, and and that's you know they were being recruited for Palestine, you know not anywhere else. They didn't have a choice of Palestine or Malaya or what have you. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, I just want to place your book uh, into sort of a large historiographical debate. Now, obviously, as I said at the beginning, the book is uh, very much about Irish history, but it uh, connects uh, with the history of Palestine, and so it makes it very attractive also for Middle Eastern historians. Now, at the very beginning, you make it clear that you do not delve into at, at least at large, into the question of Irish participation in British imperialism uh, and sort of a historiographical debate about it. But I, I'm curious uh, to hear uh, your views on this historiographical debate. Yeah, I, I deliberately kind of avoided that. I mean, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what's seen as a paradox between the Irish as subjects and participants, um, you know, in the imperial project, colonizers, uh, yet colonized at the same time and so on. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, the disc resolving or reconciling what's seen as the disconnect there. I'm not sure there is one, so to speak. I mean, this was commonplace across the empire. You know, the locals, for want of a better word, you know, were working for the administration and so on. The debate in Ireland at the moment seems to centre mainly on theory and what's seen specifically as the lack of theory, the failure by historians um, of the Irish imperial experience to apply, say, post-colonial theory to Ireland, like something literary scholars have been doing here for years. Now, I think this is a, a, a very interesting and very valuable angle to take. I mean, refracting Ireland's imperial history through the prism of post-colonial theory uh, and, and a generally a more developed interdis interdisciplinary approach can really uh, only be enlightening and can only really enhance our understanding of it. But you need empirical history to apply the theory to. And, you know, someone has to do the investigative spade work in terms of facts, figures, data, and so on, um, before you can start, you know, looking at it through the prism of theory. And that's what I saw this book as, the role of this book, because was to provide the facts, figures, the data for 1922. So I didn't really get in to the more, you know, the theoretical approaches. I mean, the, the nuts and bolts of Irish um, imperial service prior to 1922 were relatively well known prior to this. But most people, there was a historiographical assumption that Irish imperial service had basically stopped in 1922. So I saw this the role of this book as, as providing the evidence that this wasn't the case at all. In fact, Irish imperial service increased, except for the colonial administrative service had actually it was maintained or increased after 1922. So that's why I say at the outset, you know, that I'm going to leave those debates for now because 
you know, to have them, you need the nuts and bolts. You need the story, you need the data. And that's that's was the intention of the book. I leave it here because I understand the complexity of uh, the historiographical debates uh, about this particular period in history and also the legacy of it, uh, given also the fact that this is, uh, uh, you know, we are in 2022 and it's the uh, 100th anniversary of uh, Irish independence. And obviously this, uh, I'm sure, will lead to a, a number of debates uh, about the role of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland in the post-1922 uh, era. I'm curious about the sources that you used in um, uh, in your work. Uh, you already mentioned uh, some of the records, some of the interviews, but I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the material and sources used uh, in writing your book. Sure, yeah. Um, in terms of the archival material, that pertaining to policing and the other civilian services are kind of distinct. In terms of policing... Um, the British Gendarmerie records are gone. The book is basically a a prosopography. You know, that's the approach. It's building, you know, the data on these individuals and drawing conclusions from, you know, a quantitative analysis and so on. So I was very interested in personnel records. The British Gendarmerie ones are gone. There is a note, uh, an entry in its commandant. His commandant was Angus McNeil. There's an entry in his diary from uh, April 1926 I think when the force was disbanded in which he more or less says he burnt them so they're gone but because 95% of that force were recruited from the RIC I could go back to RIC records so RIC records that being the, the you know the normal run the the permanent force and the auxiliary division those records form the basis for the data on those men and once I had those records I could then go to others to to broaden my knowledge like you know civil registration records census records and British military records because many of them had served in the first world war and in terms of the Palestine police by which I mean when I say Palestine police here I mean the British section formed in 1926 when the to replace basically the British gendarmerie I discovered that there are two enormous archives of personnel files on them. The first are kind of like service record cards, big A4, no, they're actually bigger than A4 and not quite A3. I don't know what they are. There are 5,000 of these cards in Oxford in St. Anthony's College in the Middle East Centre archive there. And they're much more detailed than the um, RIC records. They give basically all kinds of personal particulars, education history, including dates, the schools, employment history, again, dates, the places they worked. And then in Palestine itself, details of their training, their promotions, their commendations, their punishments, their medical history, a huge amount of data. So I went through those, taking out the Irish ones and then a sample of the British ones with which to compare them. Also, there was another archive I discovered of Palestine police records, and these were personnel files, A3 envelopes stuffed with documents on each individual person. Now, when I looked at those, they were held at the Commonwealth and Empire Museum in Bristol, which has since been closed. Basically, there were about 6,000 of these envelopes. So again, it was a case of going through, picking out the Irish ones and, and a sample of the British. And these contained everything from their attestation papers, their discharge papers, their um, uh, disciplinary charge sheets and every little bit of correspondence relating to their service between them, letters home, letters to the, uh, you know, their superiors and all that sort of thing. So again, a huge archive. Since I finished, that museum has closed and those files are now in storage somewhere awaiting some sort of decision on their fate. So that they were my main sources for the policing. In terms of the civilian service, Personnel records don't exist, but um, so I used the Colonial Office list, which was basically a, a volume published annually from uh, between 1862 and 1966, except for a couple of years, the Second World War, 1947, and so on. And that basically gave details of every colonial servant up until the end of the Second World War. And you could they didn't tell you which one was Irish, but you'd, I would adduce that from their education places of education and stuff like that. And that gave you details on their service, which you could use to go to things like newspapers or whatever. Um, It's of limited value after the Second World War because there was a huge recruitment drive into the civilian services after the war. And it, you know, the numbers became too unwieldy. So they started cutting down who actually made it onto the list. So it's less useful after that. There's also a list for India, the India office list, and also in terms an important source in terms of archival material 
is the Commonwealth and Africa Studies collection of papers at uh, Oxford at the Bodleian. And basically they did um, a big collection of the papers of uh, imperial servants. They did it in, I think, the 1980s. So a couple of thousand uh, former colonial servants deposited their papers and their reminiscences with them. So I used that together then with British and Irish state records and colonial office correspondence to uh, accumulate the data for that. In terms of non-archival as such, then I did interviews with um, Palestine policemen, their families of those that were deceased and colonial servants and so on. I also looked at um, published memoirs and diaries, of which there are several, and um, also privately held collections with families, letters, diaries and unpublished accounts. So there's an awful lot of material out there. Um, uh, So basically, yeah, uh, great, great sources. And I guess there will be uh, still plenty of material to be uncovered and discussed by uh, other historians. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. Even on Twitter, like every week, somebody will contact me saying my father was in Malaya, my mother was in this. You know, I'm accumulating stuff all the time. It's amazing what people have in their bottom drawers here. Fascinating. Uh, I'm curious, you know, moving forward uh, and discussing your book, uh, in Chapter 2, you talk about uh, the British Gendarmerie, which you already mentioned several times. Now, I guess people are very familiar with the uh, Palestine Police Force, uh, which is you know some sort of a name that is very common. But less common is what we know about the British Gendarmerie. And as you mentioned, this uh, corps was eventually disbanded in 1926. Can you tell us a little bit more about the British Gendarmerie, who were the people... Uh, you know, recruited in this service and why was it created in the first place and also why was it uh, disbanded in 1926? Yeah, it it was created to basically solve two problems that the British government uh, perceived that they had in Palestine. And the first one was the expense of the British Army garrison, which was stationed there since after the First World War. Um, because there was unrest in Palestine. I mean, anti-Zionist unrest had, you know, sort of erupted in 1920, again in 1921. So they felt that they needed, they did need some sort of um, a a garrison, a British garrison as such, uh, with which to kind of maintain maintain, uh, public order. So this their realisation that something needed to be done, they started thinking about this after the Jaffa, what are called the Jaffa riots, the May 1921 riots. And this coincided with the realisation that the Royal Irish Constabulary was going to be probably disbanded. You know, by the summer, it was clear enough that, you know, some sort of a peace was going to be forged between the Republicans in Ireland and the British government, and that the Royal Irish Constabulary was going to be a casualty of that. So basically, um, Churchill, Winston Churchill, who was then the Secretary of State for the Colonies, decided he, his brainwave was that these disbanded RIC could be moved to Palestine um, uh, to uh, create a force that would, be, would act as a kind of a, a riot squad and a sort of a, a striking force, which could replace the British army. So it would solve that problem. And it would also solve the problem of these thousands of disbanded RIC looking for jobs. So to cut a long story short, recruitment, that it was decided, passed by the British cabinet, that this, this is what was going to be done in December 1921. And the Irish police chief, Henry Hugh Tudor, was in Dublin Castle here, was charged with, with sorting the whole thing out. So they began recruitment in the spring of uh, 1922. And by April, they put a force together of about 750 um, police, British, on, I call it, to be called the British section of the Palestine Gendarmerie. There was already a Palestine Gendarmerie there uh, that was created in July of 1921, and it was it was basically locally um, recruited personnel, uh, Arabs, Jews, Circassians, and Druze. There were sections, and uh, they were officered officered by British. So this was to be the British section of that. So. About 750 of them went out, uh, sailed out in April of 1922. Uh, 95% of them were XRIC, 85% former black and tans and auxiliaries. When they got out there, they basically, uh, were, they, the, the intention was that they would act as a kind of a backup to the Palestine police, the locally recruited British officer, Palestine police and Palestine gendarmerie. And so they were, they were kind of, uh, 
there was a headquarters section and other seven or eight other companies were formed and they were kind of based in urban centres and from there they were intended to be called out in, in times of emergency. Um, didn't really work out like that to a large extent. I mean, their reputation preceded them. There were moves and a lot, there was a kind of a scheme between the British and Palestine governments to kind of hide the fact that they were recruited from the black and tans primarily because that would you know, give them a bad reputation and would probably cause unease in Britain. But it, of course, couldn't be concealed because the scale of RIC recruitment was so great. So they actually turned it to their advantage in Palestine. You know, they were saying, well, you know, we've got this, we've, the black and tans are here, you know, keep quiet. If there's any disturbances here, this is who you're going to be up against. So Palestine was essentially more or less quiet while they were there. Um, that in itself then led to kind of, you know, uh, a reorganization of the garrison in 1926 was kind of wondered, well, you know, do we need this? Do we need that? You know, do we need a striking force like this? So they were basically disbanded. There were other issues involved in that decision as well, but they were disbanded in, in 1926 in April and replaced by a British section of the Palestine police, which was then a 220 um, strong kind of crack squad, essentially a smaller British gendarmerie, which would do the same thing wait until there's an emergency and go out from them. So the British Gendarmerie had a four-year career. Um, its reputation, again, preceded it, so ensured that it it basically was operating in a, in a situation that was unlike Ireland. So you didn't have the same excesses. These were the same men who had caused mayhem in Ireland, black and tannery as such. Uh, didn't really happen in Palestine. There were incidents. When they were called out, they basically did it with a great show of strength and were very brutal. But they basically were, were, it was basically a quiet enough time for them. So yeah, this led then to their disbandment. You also discuss in this chapter, and it's also throughout other chapters, you, you often mention the question of the Irish model, and which is also, you know, some sort of a, you know, way of saying cited by many scholars. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what is this model and how it worked in Palestine. The, the Irish model, yeah, there's kind of it's there are kind of two meanings to it. In its essential form, it's about the structural and kind of institutional character of police forces. Um, basically, as I, I said earlier, the RIC was basically seen as a sort of an elite police force in the later 19th century, and it was used as a template or a model for other colonial police services. And as I said, RIC went out to these places. Um, the, the kind of term Irish model basically derives from a very influential book by um, a person who worked in the colonial office called uh, Charles Jeffries. He wrote a book called The Colonial Police, published in 1952, in which he said that the really effective influence on the development of the colonial police services was the RIC because it's defining features. Um, and these are features that um, were dictated by the conditions in Ireland, you know, rest of conditions, popular and political unrest. These defining features were more suitable to colonial conditions than the defining features, shall we say, of the police services of Great Britain and Ireland, or, or sorry, of Great Britain itself. So these, these defining features were like government control. The RIC was centrally controlled by the government. It also had a paramilitary character. It was basically semi-military. It was barracked and equipped like a semi-military force, not like the police forces of Britain, which were civilianized and in, in opposition to centrally controlled, they were kind of uh, decentralized. The London Met had nothing to do with the Liverpool police and so on. They were completely distinct. And also their RIC had a coercive function. So basically it was an, an agent of the central government of Dublin Castle, and it was their basically coercive arm in terms of um you know, when there was public or political unrest. And this was seen as an ideal template for colonial conditions because basically, you know, the colonial police forces were the first, they were the front line, they were the everyday implement of colonial state power. And the RIC was seen as, you know, a, a template for this. So that's basically what was meant in, in, in that, in the essential sense of the Irish model. In its broader form, it kind of refers to the disposition and the outlook and and the methods, shall we say, of a particular police force, and that is in relation to its its role as the you know the coercive arm of of the central colonial government. Like the RIC was an armed gendarmerie, and the the colonial police services were also basically in gendarmerie form. They were armed, and in the colonies, then 
this sort of Irish model, when you hear of Irish models, Irish approaches, it can often not just mean the structure of the force, but basically how it acted and basically a byword for police brutality in, in the colonies and particularly in Palestine. You asked about Palestine in particular. I suppose in, in terms of that, then in the essential, the structural form, the British Gendarmerie was completely RIC modelled. It was basically, uh, its template was the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Like it, it was formed into kind of hundred strong companies who patrolled areas in times of emergency from urban centres. It was also barracked and equipped and trained like the the um, auxiliary division and the RIC in general, you know, this kind of paramilitary training, military trail, arms training, stuff like that, stuff completely alien to the police forces of, of Britain, of Great Britain. Um, as in Ireland also, in terms of an Irish model, the gendarmerie and later the Palestine police, the British section, formed the front line against insurgencies as the RIC had in Ireland particularly during the Great Arab Revolt of the 1930s and the Zionist insurgency of the 1940s. So in that sense, um, the Irish model was, was transposed into Palestine in terms of, again, the structure and organisation of the British Gendarmerie, whether the Irish model in terms of, you know, black and tannery and police brutality was transferred from Ireland into Palestine is a kind of a different matter. It certainly happened, but whether it was RIC influenced or Irish influenced is, is another issue altogether, I think. And you already mentioned the Arab Revolt 1936 to 1939, where essentially the so-called Irish model became very uh, popular, I would say infamous in a way. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it's uh, certainly remembered in the region. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the role of uh, the Irishmen in the police force uh, during the Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939. Yeah, as I said earlier, the, the, the Palestine police, and again, I'm, when I use that term, I'm referring to the British section, that started off in 1926 as about 220 strong sort of crack force, which again, like the gendarmerie, is supposed to go out and, and deal with emergencies. After the anti-Zionist um, the anti-Zionist uh, episode in 1929, when I think about 133 Jews were killed, in addition to Arabs and, and some British, after that, it was bumped up to 600 because it was seen, 200 was seen as insufficient. When the Arab revolt broke out in April 1936, those numbers were seen as insufficient. Again, like in Ireland, it was decided that the police were going to form the front line against this, not the army at that stage. So the police, they started recruiting police in, um, particularly in 1937, they got in an Irish man called Charles Cheegert, who had been um, head of the police in Bengal since 1901. He'd re recently retired. He was brought in to restructure Palestine police to better equip them to fight the insurgency because they were failing in 1936. The, the, by 1936, there had been a reorganization of the British section of the Palestine police by uh, under Sir Her Herbert Daubigan. And between 1931 and 1936, that had been essentially civilianized. It had, its paramilitary capacities, which with which it had been imbued in 1926, were stripped back. So it was doing much more civilian policing and it was completely unsuited to tackling an insurgency. So Charles Teager decided that what was needed was, again, a reinforcement. And he basically did what had been done in Ireland. He basically said that what was needed were tough kind of policemen, ex-servicemen uh, recruited in who were better equipped to deal with an insurgency, ex-military men, that is, than basically civilian police. So 1800 uh, policemen were recruited in Britain uh, between 1937 and 1939 to join the Palestine police to provide what Tigre called the tough type of man suited to deal with, with, with bandits, as he called them. And about 10% of those were Irish. So they were again on the front line together with Irish people who were still there since 1926. They were, found themselves on the front line against the Arab insurgency. There were other Irish involved there, the judiciary. There were several Irish judges there during the Arab revolt. And uh, most famously, the Chief Justice Michael MacDonald, Sir Michael MacDonald, who was Chief Justice uh, in 1936 when it broke out, but he was basically sacked as he was seen as being too sympathetic to the Arab side. 
And there were also Irish regiments of the British Army there. They were brought in at certain points to deal with the insurgency, the Royal Ulster Rifles, the Irish Guards and the Royal Irish uh, Regiment. So basically between the police, the army and the judiciary, there were Irish people on the front line or such, you know, dealing with, with, with the revolt. In the following chapters of your book, you often talk about the question of Irishness. And I was wondering if you can tell us briefly what does this mean, and uh, particularly how does Irishness relate to Palestine? Well, I suppose Irishness is a slippery enough concept, really. Um, most historians of uh, Ireland and Empire basically make their own definition of who they're considering to be Irish as such. For my book, I, I defined Irish as someone born or raised here in Ireland or born to Irish parents overseas who were exposed to Irish cultural or other influences, and so identified as Irish. And Sir Michael MacDonald would be a good example of that. He was born in London to Irish parents, but in a very Irish atmosphere, he identified himself as Irish and was an Irish nationalist and so on. Now, that's who I define as Irish, you know, people who fit that criteria. What their Irishness actually means is, 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 is a different matter because there are so many... It's a spectrum, or not even a spectrum, but there are so many varieties. Roy Foster talk, used that term, talking about Irishness in a kind of a, the early modern period, varieties of Irishness, um, which could be really so complex and contingent to defy, you know, specific categorization. I mean, there were as many varieties of Irishness in the Irish imperial service as there were Irish imperial servants. Everybody had their own, you know, their own beliefs, their own influences their own idea of what their Irishness uh, meant. So for the book, for kind of the purposes of, of, you know, of broad analysis, I rather maybe crudely, I suppose it could be argued, broke it down into three sort of different varieties. So the first would be Irish unionists, and these would be mainly Protestants, but quite a good deal of Catholics who were basically Irish unionists who had supported the constitutional status quo before 1922, supported the um, the incorporation of Ireland in into the United Kingdom and who kind of remained after 1922 unreconciled to the new dispensation, not happy, would have gone back into the UK in a heartbeat. So they were the first group that I sort of, you know, kind of um, categorised or put into a category to facilitate analysis. The second then I called nationalist imperialists. And again, these were Irish people who were Irish nationalists, supported the Home Rule movement throughout the later the second half of the 19th century, and who, with independence in 1922, would have mainly seen their aspirations for that overachieved in that dominion status within the empire that Ireland got in, in 1921 far exceeded the devolutionary powers that they would have got under Home Rule. But these people wanted Ireland to have you know, dominion status in the sense that ruling its own affairs, but still within the British imperial orbit, still part of the British Empire. Most of them saw the British Empire as a force for the good. The third group then I call small R Republicans, and this is to distinguish them from, you know, those I, I capitalise in the book, Republicans, who were the fringe Republican movement, who the Sinn Féin and IRA, who continued after the split of 1921 and 1926 as such. So small R Republicans would have been people who often came from the constitutional nationalist position, the home rule position, but who had been kind of radicalised in a sense by the later stages of the Irish Revolution, by the War of Independence, and came to support a complete break um, with the empire. This would really have represented, I think, mainstream nationalist opinion in Ireland after 1922. People who were, you know, again, supported a complete break with the empire. So in terms of Irishness, you're talking about, again, there's a, a definition of who qualified. And within that, then you've got these, you know, this multiplicity of varieties. I mean, Irish colonial services, servants represented the heterogeneity of of Irish identities, whatever you had in Ireland, you found in the colonies. But these three categories were something that I kind of, you know, I lumped people into as such crudely, as I said, maybe, to try and facilitate some sort of analysis to see could I see differences in approach to the colonial uh, world within these groups. In, in terms of Palestine, um, I looked at then how these varieties of Irishness, how someone's sense of an Irish identity shaped their attitudes towards the situation in Palestine. 
And um, again, Michael McDonald would perhaps be a good example. He was again Chief Justice in the first half of the 1930s. And again, he, he made comparisons between Ireland and uh, Palestine, the situation he found in Palestine, which completely coloured his view of what was going on there. For instance, he associated what he saw as Zionist privilege under the British administration there with the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, a class being given a clear privilege over the indigenous population, you know, people who'd come in, planters, you know, he compared people who, Protestants who'd come in with the Cromwellian plantations as such with Zionist immigrants coming into Palestine from the uh, 1880s onwards. He saw then, he he compared their, what he saw as their seizure of land. Now, you know, there were purchases, but he saw them as completely unfair, underhand, and he compared that to the Cromwellian dispossessions in Ireland. Again, in the time he was there, I think, I'm not sure in the figures, but like Zionist immigration went up from something like 4,000 a year in 1931 to about over 60, 65,000 in 1936. So he was witnessing what he saw as the plantation, Irish style of Palestine by immigrants. He also um, compared what he saw as the repression in the early stages of, because he was only there for the early stages of 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 the Arab revolt. He compared the Palestine police repression, which was quite brutal and involved all kinds of, you know, stuff that the indefensible stuff on part of the on the part of the police. He compared that to the black and tans again. Another thing he was a throwback to Ireland, and he was also completely against the partition of Palestine because he saw that it had been, you know, again an Irish perspective. It was wrong to divide the country unfairly. In terms of broader, um, broader applications of Irishness to Palestine, a lot of the police who went over there, the Irish police, kind of felt a, per- a personal affinity with the Irish because again. They, they identified with them, the rural culture, the hospitality, um, you know, village culture, this kind of thing. They saw this as essentially an Irish kind of a thing. So they self-identified with them. And again, some of the political situation, what they saw as a dispossession. On the other hand, then you had Irish people who came over and identified with the Zionist insurgency in the 1940s. They identified that with the Irish struggle for independence. They here was a kind of a you know, a a people who were trying to achieve sovereignty and nationhood um, by fighting the British imperial system. And they, they, you know, for them, that was a throwback to what had happened in Ireland in 1921. So with regard to Palestine, yeah, I mean, it's a multifaceted thing. But what I was looking at is how people, how the Irish experience, how people's sense of Irish identity um, impacted on their view, influenced their view of what was going on in Palestine and their actions in that regard in terms of Michael McDonald. I mean, most of the cases, I think that he 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 settled in favour of Arabs during the Arab revolt, which so infuriated the British administration, led to a sacking. They were all legally sammed. But basically, he, he, he was on their side because of his Irishness, because of his, his understanding of the Irish situation and what he saw as its replication in Palestine. I'm just curious about... Uh something that you know you touch upon briefly in your work um you mentioned that there were also a few women uh, employed by uh, the british service mostly in civilian uh, uh sort of jobs and, and and i just wanted to you know ask you if you have a few example of irish women employed in the service and if you can tell us a little bit more about them yeah Technically, women were eligible to apply for all branches of the colonial service, not the police. Such there was there was one woman in the Palestine police, but she was the matron of the Bethlehem women's prison, and she had some sort of honorary status. But she was the only woman that was in the colonial police. But technically, women were eligible to apply for all of the other services. But it was a really strongly masculine organisation, and the environment was was really not conducive. It wouldn't have been attractive to women as such. And so that kind of exerted a downward pressure on recruitment, as did the institutional reluctance of the colonial service itself to recruit women because they saw women as, you know, there were disabilities involved. They didn't think that they were constitutionally suitable to tropical conditions, for instance. And that was even even the um, women themselves, say the colonial nursing service, which was which was all women, I mean, they also kind of saw women as having a kind of a disability, 
when it came to colonial service. They talked about, you know, the situation at home. A woman could join the colonial nursing service and have to go home because her father was sick. This kind of thinking, you know. So all of this um, exerted a downward pressure on uh, women. Also, in terms of institutional reluctance, I mean, there are several references across the archive of the, of the colonial services to this idea that women only joined the colonial service to find a husband, that it was sort of a, you know, they were, it was almost like a, fish, a fishing fleet kind of a thing. And there were several references I found throughout in various different um, archives to this idea that, they, that, that that's what they were doing, that they were actually going out looking for, for, for husbands. And, you know, Furs, Ray Furs, who was in charge of colonial service recruitment from um, 1919 onwards, he was t- he was told by very when he went touring the colonies, he was told in several places not to recruit women because as soon as they got a husband, they went home. And interestingly, one Irish woman who did go out, she, she wrote a memoir, Joyce Delaney. She joined the colonial medical service in the 1950s. She actually says in her book that that's why she went out, but obviously it's patently absurd in a general level. So basically that kind of, all of that and institutional reluctance by the service and the unattractiveness of of a service that was really intensely masculine, that um, kept numbers low. So between, say in the interwar period, you only had um, not even 200 women join the colonial service and those that did joined, you know, the colonial medical service and they joined in traditionally female roles like paediatrics, obstetrics, gynecology and in the education service, again, teaching, caring professions, if you like. The figures, I think, for the interwar period were 72, around 72 anyway in the colonial medical service and about 82 in the education service. But after the war, because the colonial service was in the doldrums in terms of personnel because of, of the war, and every service needed huge um, investment in manpower, the colonial service did make a conscious and active effort to recruit more women. So between 1945 and 1955, they were recruiting around 100 women a year. Um, they also uh, brought in a scheme where women could be recruited into administration because that was seen as something they just wouldn't have been able to do before this. There was um, uh, an administrative officer scheme specifically for women and that recruited about 80. They went to East and West Africa. But the colonial nursing service was, again, all women and that would have been the main recruiter. About 3,500 women joined that between 19... Uh, 22 and 1952. In terms of Irish women, um, the numbers were low. Uh, from what I could gather from an al- analysing the data in the colonial office list, I've, I've worked out that about 8% of women who joined the medical and educational service uh, in the period 1922 up to about 1966, between about 8 and 10% of those were women. I couldn't, the colonial nursing service wasn't included in the colonial list, so I, I can't identify how many Irish would have been involved in that. But I'd say it was significant because a lot of these were recruited from hospitals in Britain, especially after the Second World War, and huge numbers of Irish women went over to Britain to train as nurses because it was you got it was free, unlike here in Ireland. So hundreds, if not thousands, of Irish women went over and trained as nurses in Britain in the post-war, post-Second World War period. And a lot of them, I and mean, you see names popping up here and there, but a lot of them would have ended up uh, in the colonies. So uh, low numbers from Ireland, you're talking about, again, 8 to 10% of a low enough number in itself. But it's just important to point out that, you know, they, they were recruited, they did serve, I thought. I want to share with you briefly a couple of stories with you and the listeners about my experience uh, working in Ireland and connecting, you know, the dots of our conversation here. So when I moved to the University of Limerick and I taught there for five years, uh, you know, teaching Middle Eastern history, at some point I started getting uh, more and more students who wanted to write uh, their final uh, year dissertation with me. And essentially they wanted to talk about the experience of uh, their grandparents, their grandfathers, uh, who actually served in, uh, in, uh, in Palestine. And I was surprised that there were actually quite a few. And, you know, they had uh, letters, uh, you know, 
some writings here and there, and some of these uh, elderly were still uh, alive. So we managed to go through the ethic process, and you know, they they brought uh, interviews, or sometimes they found diaries, and so I got to learn a lot more about uh, sort of the uh, the Irish experience in Palestine. And uh, the other story is connected to a personal experience that I had uh, when um, at some point I, had, uh, I needed some medical attention and uh, I was to talking to a nurse at the uh, uh, hospital in Limerick. And, you know, as we were chatting, it turned out that she worked as a nurse at St. Joseph Hospital, which is in uh, East Jerusalem. And I found out that there's still a number of uh, mostly women uh, nurses working uh, in um, Palestinian hospitals, you know, for a number of years as a service. And so I'm curious about the legacy of the Irish presence in Palestine back in Ireland. How is the history of these Irish women and men told today? And uh, is there still a sort of relationship between, uh, uh, you know, Ireland and Palestine, whether it's Israel or Palestine, uh, you know, going on? Well, I'm not sure the story is told at all, really, Roberto, here. I know certainly I, I'm telling it, and when I, you know, in public history outputs, like articles and so on, the reaction from the general public is, it ranges basically from surprise to utter astonishment that, you know, Irish people were involved in, in imperial service in general, and particularly in Palestine. I think, it kind of points to, and I saw this again with the controversy over the RIC, the commemoration in 1920, that new research on things like the RIC, which I do myself again, and in Irish imperial history, it doesn't really filter outside the academy. It hasn't actually done so yet. I suppose a lot of it is very new, and the debates that are going on will help with that. I mean, there's a very good article in the second, I think the second last issue of, of Irish Historical Studies, Cleveland Ovade and Ian McBride. It's um, a kind of a roundtable thing on decolonizing the curriculum. So I think the more people, the more scholars that sort of start researching this period and the more that is talked about in general, because Irish people have a huge appetite for history, more so I read anyway, than other countries. I mean, most of the newspapers every day have something to do with history, particularly in the period that we're kind of commemorating at the moment. So maybe then this will filter down. But um, the prevailing public view in Ireland, as far as I can see, and again, this is generally in reaction to stuff that's published in the Irish Times op-eds and to my own work, you know, public history outputs more than academic, is that the view in the Irish public is still that Irish imperial service was basically a Protestant thing, a plan to preserve. And I mean, they were the mainstay. The Protestant community here was the mainstay of Irish imperial service from the middle of the 19th century, right up. They were still accounting for about 67% of the civilian services in the interwar period. And even after the war, when there was a huge recruitment drive and imperial service became a huge thing here for people looking for work, engineers, lawyers, doctors, some educators, not to the same extent as the others. Um, the Protestant population was still contributing 45% of imperial service. But there is this idea that, you know, among the, because the Protestant population is around 5% of the population in the, in the Republic of Ireland. So there's still this idea that it's not, this story isn't about us. You know, I, sorry, I come from, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I'm from, I'm from the Catholic side, if you like. So that it's not about us, it's not our story. So it's not, it's not widely told in that sense. But as you say, and I've had this experience myself, the people will get in touch if you publish something and it's posted on Twitter, suddenly you're getting emails. My father was here. Less less so my I'm a female relative, but I, you know, letters, diaries, I've been sent stuff. It's just it's amazing how much it you know there is out there. And the interesting thing about it is that it's clear from my research, clear to me at least, that it wasn't a controversial thing when it was happening. Like after 1922, between 1922 and 1926, when the colonial office closed, Irish imperial service was not controversial. There were thousands of Irishmen joining the British Army, and that's something that is well documented, which I didn't look, but also huge numbers joining civilian services, the police and the other services. And the, when you look at that, 
how the reaction to that it was it was you know there was the republican rome the capital our republican rome were giving out about it of course but most people it was fine i mean it was reported in the papers particularly the provincial press which is a great source um for kind of trying to gauge public opinion in ireland because there's a really vibrant was and still is a really vibrant uh, provincial press here regional press and they have reports about you know Johnny Johnny Murphy from down the road has just joined the Palestine police has gone off we wish him well all this kind of stuff letters home from them published in the press about their experiences the references Irish uh, applicants to the colonial service need were from like Catholic clergy TDs members of Parliament local councillors you know the pillars of Irish society were providing references from them the Department of Foreign Affairs or External Affairs as it was then were also facilitating it when people wrote in to them asking about, you know, imperial service, whether opportunities they were sending on information. So it seems to have been basically uncontroversial here. When it became controversial is a moot point. One has to assume it was after the troubles in, in, in the, 19, the late 1960s and 70s that having service for the crown suddenly became something that wasn't talked about. My own grandfather fought in the Second World War. He lost a leg in the Low Countries. That was something I knew in the 17th and 80s, wasn't something you kind of mentioned um, without ever being told. So I think that, you know, the veil that kind of came over, discussion of these things happened later. At the time, colonial service wasn't actually uh, controversial at all. Today then, you know, it's, it's something that people are kind of just becoming alive to again, that this was a thing that happened in in independent Ireland in the in the mid twentieth century, something that was general, something that was uncontroversial, and something in which, as many people, you know, know their own ancestors um, took part. In terms of attitudes today, of course, Ireland is routinely condemned by the Israeli government as being the most anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic. They often say that country in Western Europe. And Ireland is very sympathetic and very sympathetic and very supportive of Palestinian national aspirations today. Um, and there's a lot of involvement with NGOs and other individuals, um, people between, you know, Palestine and Ireland, people going over and back, helping out and so on and so forth. Again, it's it's an identification which has gone on since the 1970s, since the occupation, I suppose, with the Palestinian people as a, a people that have been dispossessed of their homeland, of their and stripped of nationhood, uh, well, you know, potential nationhood by what's seen as a colonial enterprise. Zionism is basically seen here by most people as a sort of a neo-colonial thing. And there is huge sympathy with, with um, the Palestinian population. So I'm, I suppose... That, you know, that sort of view for people then is complicated by the fact that Irish people were instrumental in, you know, the colonial administration back in the day. Uh, but again, it's something that's only now I think people are becoming aware of. It's, it's not um, a story that's widely known. I have one last question. Thinking about your book, I was wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask, but that you would like to highlight yeah, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to go back to because it's one of the main thrusts of the book and that's to do with when we were talking about, you know, the Arab revolt and the Irish model and that sort of a thing. Um, there is a, the fact that, you know, um, that the, an Irish model was imposed, that basically uh, an Irish approach to policing was imported into Palestine from Ireland and that this, you know, was seen in particularly the Arab revolt and to a lesser extent the Zionist insurgency in the 1940s, that this was somehow an RIC thing that, you know, people say that it was basically the transfer of, of black and tans essentially to Palestine. They were still there in the 1930s and 1940s that it, and that they had brought with them the experience of Ireland and imposed it in Palestine. And also that, you know, there was an institutional memory in a broader sense that was transferred from Irish to Palestine, that this was responsible for the atrocities uh, that, it was, that, that occurred within the policing of both of those insurgencies. I, I just want to say that, I, you know, I don't really agree with that. I, I and it, it's a it's a story, it's an historical commonplace. It's in all of the literature, but I don't think there's much evidence for that. I mean, the number of XRIC who were there in the late 1930s was 43, I think I worked out, and it was about half that during the Zionist insurgency. So, 
you know, the the idea that um, that there were loads of ex black and tans here doing their thing as such, doing their Irish thing in Palestine, isn't actually true. Most of the drastic counterinsurgency measures that were um, implemented in Palestine during both uh, the Arab and Zionist insurgencies were instituted by non, you know, police officers with non-RIC pedigrees or by external agents. And I'm thinking here, say, in relation to the Zionist revolt of those, the Arab investigation centres where people were tortured and so on in these centres. They were brought in by Charles Tigert, who really had no, his experience with India. There was also the mobile police striking force was essentially like a, I think there were three fifty strong detachments who basically went charging around like black and tans, laying waste uh, villages and you know brutalizing people in front of them. Th- th- that was again something that was brought in by an external agent, not by black and tans. The same when we come to the nineteen forties, say the the the, the Palestine uh, the police mobile force again, this two thousand strong kind of striking force was again not an RIC thing. It was instituted by. Um, the Inspector General there and John Reimer Jones and, you know, organised by people who had no relationship with Ireland. And again, the Farron, the, the Q squads, the, the Farron uh, snatch squads, they were again instituted by people who had no relationship uh, with Ireland. So I think that um, it's important to say that this, this, this idea that it was all a black and tan thing, you know, a seamless movement of ideas, personnel and so on from Palestine, from Ireland to Palestine. The evidence doesn't really bear that out. And and it's also an historical commonplace that this was transferred from Palestine on to the wider empire, Malaya, Kenya and all those places, uh, through the transfer of Palestine police uh, to these theatres. Again, there's no evidence for that. And it's something that probably can't be really um, ascertained in any evidential way because we don't have the sources, the sources I mentioned on the Palestine police, which are wonderful and more scholars should look at them because they're a treasure trove. We don't have anything like that for the police forces, the colonial police forces and other theatres where there were brutalizations like Malaya and, and Kenya, I suppose, would be the examples, Aden, these places. We don't have that sort of information on the police there. This was Sean William Gannon, author of the Irish Imperial Service, Policing Palestine and Administering the Empire, 1922-1966, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. My pleasure.